Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome back to the Open Deeply podcast. In the last three biographies, all three of us, Sunny, Siri, and myself, realized that we had been overgivers, meaning that we had been emotionally overextending ourselves in our past relationships. I favor the term overgiver instead of codependent because many people do not identify with everything that's associated with codependency. I know I don't. The overgiver overtaker dynamic relationship dynamic in the U.S. is rampant, both in monogamous and non-monogamous relationships. The reason for it are not just psychological, but most definitely cultural as well. And it's as American as guns and porn. But before we get started on the topic, I need to remind you that the Open Deeply podcast is not a replacement for therapy or therapy. Please know that this podcast has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, an emotional support hotline, such as 800-273-TALK-8255. All right, so to get started, I thought maybe we should define some of these terms. You know, Sunny, we've had a bazillion conversations about this, and there's so many different terms out there. A lot of people use codependent. Some people talk about self-love deficit disorder. So maybe we should start by talking about some of these different terms. Yeah, I have always hated the term codependent and not resonated with it at all. I've really struggled with it for a couple of reasons. Like one, my very logical neurodiverse brain looks at the word as like its meaning. Co, two, dependent, you know, dependent. So two people being dependent on each other. And my brain's like, no, isn't that interdependence? Isn't that not necessarily a bad thing in a relationship? And and I I know technically that's not what it means, but my, you know, my my rigid technical brain is like that word just doesn't sound right to me but secondly you know when when i think of what codependent really means you know it's somebody that that thrives on the affection or thrives on gaining the affection or the approval from another partner by either subconsciously or sometimes consciously but probably most of the time subconsciously putting themselves in a position of depending on that partner. And, you know, I feel that it's in some ways sort of victim blaming, you know, like the codependent person is supposed to have the best of intentions, but they're really, you know, manipulating someone to get their their self-worth or their their feeling of value. And you hear the word tossed around a lot in like the 12 step communities and alcohol anonymous. And it's oftentimes likened with being an enabler. And I'm just like, you know, that just doesn't jibe with me. Being an overgiver, I feel like, you know, if technically you fall into that definition of codependent, maybe that's one type of overgiving. But there's so many other types of overgiving that codependency just doesn't fit at all. Exactly. And when you think about that, um, you know, as I said in the intro, a lot of this is cultural. So, you know, and there's different, you know, 
you can be a overgiver, you know, regardless of gender, race, etc., and so on. But let's face it, gosh, I, 85, 95% of overgiving in women is due to gender norms and patriarchy. And so to almost pathologize that seems really like gaslighting at its finest. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I, I, I'm not a fan, not a fan at all. And I know that like you had actually introduced me to a term that I wasn't as familiar with, the self-love deficit disorder. Yeah, which, I ugh. actually, right, right. It sounds horrible, doesn't yeah, it? No. I, I actually had not heard that term. A friend of mine made me aware of the term. And, and actually, when I look at how they describe it, a lot of it, you know, describes her and probably would, you know, if you, you know, probably would describe a lot of people. So it's, it's got some good characteristics. I totally want to talk about that, but but let's just define overgiving first, like yeah, what, yeah. what I mean by it. Like to me, when I think of an overgiver, I think of it more in terms of behaviors rather than a type. And it's certainly not in the DSM, the Diagnostical Diagnostic Statistical Manual, an over giver or overgiving behaviors, uh, this person might overextend themselves emotionally. They usually have insufficient self-care boundaries. And this leads to them having a lot of pent up resentment. And then they'll spin on all the things that they are resentful about in the relationship or how they can make it better. And they have a lot of overgivers think I can just heal them with my love. Oh, you know? gosh. I've been there. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I sometimes think that the only overgivers that know that that's not possible entirely are therapists, you know, and you you will find a lot of overgivers in healing professions like therapy and nurses, etc. And it's not the same as generosity, because when you're generous, I think that more comes from a place of actually enjoying, enjoying being generous and, and it's not depleting. Right. It's not it's at one of the person's detriment. Right. You know, it's it's more mutual. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can think about times you've been generous where it just lit you up and you love seeing their face. And if you thought back on it the next day, you're just like, oh, it's so nice to see them so happy by that thing that I did, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. totally different. You know, and as you said, you know, like codependency is more linked with, you know, the enablers being characterized with low self-esteem, you know, linked to Alcoholics Anonymous. They're often being, they're often seen as sick as their partner. Yes. Let's, let's sit with that one for a second. Yes. It's like you poor broken thing, you codependent. And I hate that. I mean, it's. All right. Yeah, no. Mm -mm. Right. You know, see, this is the thing about that one. I just want to sit with that one for a second. It's like when I started to become more aware of all of this stuff, you know, overgiving versus codependency, because, you know, it wasn't covered in my master's program because, again, it's not in the DSM. And I'd hear over and over again that they're as sick as their partner. And but once I started working with my clients that were overgivers, like they literally would sometimes change in a couple of weeks or, or maybe a couple of months. As soon as they understood, a lot of them changed partners and their next partner was like way kinder. The relationship was way more balanced. So this whole business with codependency using a lot of 12-step stuff, a lot of 
words implying that the person is an addict. And, you know, if the person can change their behavior patterns within a couple of weeks or months, that doesn't sound like somebody that needs a 12-step program, does it? Exactly. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And you'll also hear them say, oh, well, you can't heal this with traditional therapy. But, you know, EMDR and things like that are considered traditional therapy now. So that's not true. EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is a psychotherapy that enables people to heal from the symptoms and emotional distress that are the result of disturbing life experiences. Repeated studies show that by using EMDR, people can experience the benefits of psychotherapy that once took years to make a difference. For more, please go to emdr.com and we will include a link in the show notes. We'll talk more about this, you know, when I get to the self-love deficit disorder. And and the last thing about codependency is it's seen as being subconsciously manipulative and it may be a subconscious want to keep their partner compromised. Like subconsciously, you don't want them to get better. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost gives the impression like, really, you're the manipulator. You're the fault. It's all your fault. It's very yeah. victim blaming. It really is. Right. I don't resonate with that at all. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly there are probably people out there like that. You know, they want to stay the hero. And if their partner were to get better, they they wouldn't dig the relationship anymore. But I I think there's a lot of overgivers that would be like, no, that does not apply to me. I wonder how much of this definition of codependency and how it is evolved and, and, you know, the meaning that it has taken on societally comes from misogyny, you know, because the people who are codependent are overwhelmingly women. And of course, it's, you know, it's from like the misogynistic patriarchal playbook that, oh, these women are actually secretly emotionally manipulative. And, you know, so how much of that is just society's BS being fed into this definition? Right. And, And if you think about it, from the time we're little girls... We see TV and film that teaches us that we're supposed to be overgivers. Our families teach us that. Like, it's all day long, every day that we're mm-hmm. taught to be overgivers. And we're also taught that if we're not overgivers, that we're selfish. Yes. And if you're selfish, then you're bad. Mm-hmm. The shaming involved in simply being a woman that asks for her share is so thick mm-hmm. all day long everywhere. And, but again, it's like it's it's another one of those contradictions. If we're not overgivers, we're selfish. But if we are overgivers, we're broken, codependent, uh, subconscious manipulators. <laughs> we can't win. Right. Yeah. Uh, I had one person. Let's see if I can get this right. She described overgiving similarly to, uh, what is it, body dysmorphia, Uh you know, where the overgiver even, like, I'll give this analogy sometimes to my clients that, you know, if they're dating a narcissist, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a metaphor. So imagine the overgiver is crossing a desert and she's gone the ninth mile to get the glass of water, but then she falls to her knees with bloody feet because out of dehydration and exhaustion. So she goes back to the narcissist and is like, I'm sorry, I couldn't bring you back the water. I'm so selfish. And then the narcissist is like, you're right, you are selfish. And, you, you, and they're complicit 
in telling the overgiver that they're selfish, mm-hmm. you know, and then she's also getting it at the cultural level. Right. So it's almost like, you know, and so she has this distorted, just like the person with body dysmorphia can't see their bodies correctly. The overgiver can't see, you know, their own, you know, their own efforts correctly, no matter how much they give. It's not enough. Right. So, I mean, that kind of bridges into, you know, the self-love deficit disorder, which is more which also use a lot of recovery language. There's a and it's more specifically linked to uh, narcissism. So it has a tendency to say that the cell, the person with self-love deficit disorder had a narcissistic parent and a trauma history. And so they're kind of replicating that cycle in adulthood Mm -hmm. and they have poor self-love and poor self-esteem and they feel they're only as good as whatever they, they offer. Like they inherently don't have any worth. And so then they partner with a narcissist and, and the narcissist will use them for narcissistic fuel. Hmm. I, I wish you could see my face. It's like, meh. I mean, <laughs> and, and again, you know, it's like, are there situations out there that fall into that framework? Sure. Yeah. Are they all of them? No. <laughs> right. I, just, I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, again, it's. You know, with the self-love deficit disorder, I mean, part of my problem with it is just the title. It's like, yeah, there's people that fit into this model, but not everybody. And I think self-love deficit disorder gets co-mingled with codependency. And it's just both of them get, you know, they don't, neither model takes into account cultural influences. Neither model take, as far as I know, neither model take in what we've already talked about that, you know, maybe 95% of this is gender norms and misogyny. Yeah. I mean, I really think that, you know, growing up and coming into my early adulthood, there was, especially being a mother, because I became a mother at 24, there's this sense of like admirable martyrdom that goes with being a mother, that goes with being like a self-sacrificing spouse that will do whatever, you know, in a way, you know, at the time I'm putting myself back into my 24 year old brain Did I maybe have some inklings like this doesn't feel good? Sure. You know, but did I consciously register them? No. Consciously, I was like, I am fulfilling my role as a woman and a mother. And I look back and I'm like, wow, wow. Right. You know, and but that's what I was socialized to aspire to. Right. And if you think about series episode. You know, there's when you listen to her episode, there's that period of time where she would just let guys pick her up at a Starbucks or whatever. She didn't shoot. You know, she had a long journey to taking back her full agency in all Mm. areas of her life. And that's when she became happy. But for a long time, a lot of times she just let men choose her and she let men kind of choose her life course Right. And then she'd find herself in these really depressive places and letting someone just completely lead you like that. It's very doubtful that you'll be on your true path in such a in such a case. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it's like I look back on my own personal experience and, you know, not only was I socialized as a woman, I, you know, I had all this other stuff going on. It really just dawned on me recently. Like, I don't know why this I glossed over this, but oh my goodness, it was like my head exploded. Growing up neurodiverse, 
and growing up undiagnosed neurodiverse, like, and I have nonverbal learning disability, which shares a lot of symptoms with autism spectrum disorder, namely like not being able to read nonverbal language, not being able to read inference and tone. So there's a lot of masking. Like I would not know, like if I am happy, what is the face I use to express happy? I would have to copy other people's look of happy, you know, so Mm -hmm. I blend, I would blend in. So a lot of my, growing up in my formative years was just using all of my mental energy, concentrating on not only masking for myself, but also being like hyper aware and hyper conscious of attuning to other people because I couldn't read their emotions. I didn't know what that look on their face meant, right? So I was always trying to to fit in. You know, I was always like in my head, it's like, what are they thinking? What does that look on their face mean? Like, what do they want from me? And, And if I could figure out what they, you know, one of the ways I could figure out what they wanted from me is to try to give them things. And once they they responded in a favorable way, like, oh, that's what I want, I would feel like I won, you know, that social interaction. I finally know so what's going on. So by over giving or sometimes by, by either giving or over giving, that's how you got your feedback loop. Exactly. Exactly. You know, over giving became my way of coping and feeling around and making my way through the world. So it's like that on top of just being socialized as as a girl. No wonder, no wonder, you know, I spent 20 years not knowing what the hell I was doing, being strung around by all sorts of people using me. You know, and one of the other things that's a classic example of nonverbal learning disability and, and autism spectrum disorder is not knowing when people are lying to you. Right. I remember you saying that. Yeah, I can't. I don't know people's intentions. I don't just pick that up by instinct. So it's like, oh, I don't know if I feel better or worse now. I mean, I, I know some of this you've known for a long time, but I it feels like looking at it through the lens of where was I overgiving and where was it just me attuning with my environment the best I could can it sounds like that's going to be a new journey to like do a life review and try and sort that out yes yes i'm i'm caught it's like oh constantly learning constantly on that journey at another you know chapter i gotta figure out but yeah and i think i've become better at it you know because as a child any of us whether we're neurotypical or neurodiverse we are learning about our world. That's our job. That's what our brains are doing for the first, you know, 20 some odd years. So of course I did that more. I did that, of course, without really realizing what was going on. Um, But now that I am grown and, you know, I know how to work my brain a lot better than I did back then, I don't feel that I need to do as much masking or pleasing to cope I'm more confident in myself and confident in my abilities to just be like, no, this is what I think. And I don't care if I'm different. I don't Mm -hmm. care if you don't understand. I'm going to advocate for myself first. And I think it it took me longer to get there because of the way my brain is. Yeah. You know, and I I think we can look at this through the lens of 
whether we're looking at ableism or we're looking at sexism or internalized sexism or racism or internalized racism, you know, there's all these different ways we can toss this around. Or, you know, it, it gets tricky when we think about code switching. You know, if you're a black person and you code switch, that gets super tricky because, you know, I've talked to different people different friends that are black. And a lot of times they look at it through the lens of, you know, well, I, I don't look at it as losing myself. I look at it as, as, you know, this is a way to be successful and this is a way to do well in, in civilization. But, you know, even with that, maybe there's a, a, a place where a person could scan through their life and go, when, you know, has there been times that I, where it was too much? And of course, there are I can't go too deep into that because, you know, being a, a white female and all of that. Um, but I mean, I've listened to even white women talk about like, even like super privileged white women who maybe are writing for a top TV show and they're the only woman in the, in the room. And they told me, you know, I have to act like a dude in order to survive in that room, you know? And so that's, you can't call that code switching because I, you know, I reserve that as a word that black people use to describe their experience, but it's something akin to it. Right. Yeah. You know, and um, that's what they teach us. Like I remember being in business school. Don't be, don't use wishy-washy language here. Women, here's how to be more appear more like a man in business situations. Absolutely. And it's like, nobody stood back and went, why, why is, is acting masculine the standard here? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and some people would be like, big deal. You know, everybody has to change to fit in to a degree to keep their job or whatever. But I'm just saying, you know, maybe we should look at this and just ask ourselves at what point are we becoming a shadow of ourselves, you know, and at what point are we being complicit? That's the thing. It's like, at what point are we being complicit with, you know, whether you want to use the word dominator culture or, or you know, uh, patriarchy, you know, because you know, and where can we start to break, you know, where, because it's not just about being, again, using the word codependent, not just being codependent with a person. It's also being codependent with, you know, a racist, sexist culture. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, now that, you know, it's one of those things, once you unsee it, you, you can't, un, or once you see it, you can't unsee it. And, uh, you know, more, the more I've been concentrating on this, I think of like Trump, Right. And that that whole, you know, I I've, I very much likened that whole situation to, oh, he's like my abusive ex that I just thought, you know, the 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 worse he got, and the more controlling he got, and the more outrageous he got, I just was like intoxicated by it. And I don't know if it's that, you know, especially for women, we've been in these situations for so long with so many different types of people, whether it's partners, bosses, parent, you know, whatever, all the time. That's what's expected of us as women, that there's a certain comfort mm-hmm. in in playing off of a person like that. And that's really not good. That's not good. I'm about to mention a severe form of borderline personality disorder, BPD. But BPD symptoms can vary in severity from person to person, and in some cases, symptoms can be mild or not even quite diagnosable. I believe symptoms associated with BPD are one way some people respond to attachment injuries. Here's the heart of it. Often, what they fear most and want most is love. 
inner relationship, this inner struggle manifests with them idealizing their partner. But when the relationship gets too intimate, the fear of love kicks in and then they swing hard in the other direction. The media tends to demonize, dehumanize, and stigmatize people with BPD. But the reality is much more nuanced and human. They deserve our compassion, too. For more, go to borderlinepersonality.org. Note, BPD should not be confused with bipolar disorder. Well, if for a minute we step away from, you know, think of it as terms of narcissism or misogyny, and we look at people with borderline personality disorder... Which, you know, when you're in love with somebody with BPD, you know, uh, they can be really char- charming and stuff like that. And so when it's great and they're, you know, and you're and they're telling you you're amazing and all that, um, you know, it's just the most wonderful thing in the world. But that when they swing to the other side and they're vilifying you, you know, and you're knocked off that pedestal with a machete that cuts you off at the knees... you know, but then they prop you back up, you know, and and that sort of thing. It's like any kind of pattern like that, where there's times that are positive and times that are negative, like, or or another juxtaposition is, is the abuse cycle, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about the abuse cycle, there's the part where they're saying that they love you. And then there's the tension phase. And then there's the part where they beat you up. And then they start to you know, love bomb you again. Right. Right. And so you're chasing that cycle. You're, you're thinking, well, if I love them, right. If I love them well enough, then I can get to that good stuff. And then it starts to mirror, you know, I can see why all these addiction models sprung from it because it does start to mirror like chasing the next high. Right. Or like, what did they compare it to the, um, the jackpot machines? You know, that psychology of like, don't know when you're going to get a reward. You're just going to keep trying until you get that positive stimulus, you know. And that seems to be breaking it down to such a simple kind of like, really? But, I mean, we're wired to do. And why? Why? Yeah. but yeah, need to break out of that. Even though there is that thing that does look like addiction, uh-huh. Like I said, I've had women that have been able to change this pattern very easily, especially women that I've been able to do EMDR with where I've, you know, been able to target some of key trauma memories in their past, you know, and I've seen people change very quickly. So although it can mirror the addiction cycle, it, it's not, it's not the same thing, you know, and so maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, some different reasons for overgiving. Yeah. And, and you know, what we avoid when we're an overgiver. Like, we could think of reasons all day, but some of the reasons sometimes are to be need, uh, to be seen as the hero or the need to protect the ego, the need to avoid vulnerability. Because if you're in the hero role, you're not the vulnerable one. The need to keep up your defenses. Again, if you're in the hero role, your defenses are up. You're not vulnerable. And the need to avoid being hurt, which leads me to the things that we avoid when we're an overgiver. We avoid learning the truth about our partner and we avoid learning if they will fail us if tested. Because the whole thing with an overgiver is that they, that they don't set many boundaries. And so there's never, there's very little testing their partner to see if their partner will stand up and, and have their back. And, and so we avoid the pain that may come if they fail us. And we avoid having our trust broken again. 
God. Yeah, I totally resonate. Every, every, everything you said, I was like, ooh, ooh, that's me. Ouch, it hurts. But, I mean, you just, you pegged it right there. And, you know, and then... I guess I, I, you know, personally, you know, when it's reflected into my life, it's like, why? You know, why? I, yeah, I'm afraid of finding out the truth about my partner. And I don't know if it's because, you know, once I think I have them figured out and I feel like I'm on, you know, even footing, I don't want anything to make that topple, you know. But, yeah, that's it. You pegged me right there. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And we could list more reasons, but those are some core ones. And, and again, you know, you, you can see overgiving and un- other genders and all that. I don't want to give the impression that that it can't happen with other genders because it does. And, and I wanted to talk about overgiving when it comes to non-monogamy and how, how that shows up. Um, so obviously non-monogamy can look a bazillion different ways, but let's imagine... Well, even if somebody, let's say it was a couple and they did some swinging and they played with other partners and one partner was a narcissist and one partner was the overgiver. Mm-hmm. So a narcissist loves non-monogamy because there's a candy store involved, you know, like all these potential sexy lovers, right? Right, right. You know, and so the narcissist is going to be pushing for what they want, usually really hard because the narcissist has very little to no empathy. So they're not really... They're just going after they want without really worrying about the overgiver's feelings, um, you know. And then the overgiver doesn't want to seem controlling, and just you know. And, and then all. And by the way, in non-monogamy, almost in every part of non-monogamy, there's this over-focus on cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, you just need to logically think through your emotions. I hear a lot of that. I don't hear a lot of also really checking in with your feelings and your body sensation. I'm about to speak about my impression of the book More Than Two. To clarify, in no way am I calling Franklin Vaux or Eve Rickert narcissists. I don't know them. They aren't clients, so I certainly can't diagnose either one of them. In the article, What I Got Wrong in More Than Two... The Dark Night of the Soul, found online at brighterthansunflowers.com, Eve eloquently and compassionately addresses what my intuition was picking up on in the book. Please check it out. She continues to do great work for the poly community, such as writing the foreword for the very much needed book, Poly Secure. Meanwhile, info that may explain what I was sensing regarding Franklin can be found at polyamory-metoo.com. And I tripped on the polystair.com. I imagine you read more than two. When I when I read more than two, you know, I don't know Eve or Franklin, the writers, but mm-hmm. when I read it, I thought to myself, it feels like a narcissist wrote this. <laughs> and I literally yeah. said it to someone who is in a lot of the group chats and the poly group chats, and they burst out laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing? And they're like, because you just hit the nail on the head. I'm like, why Why do you say that? And they said, well, there's a lot of, anyway, they just indicated that I might be onto something. I, I shouldn't probably say more than that. But, you know, Eve Rickert in a little blog entry, she later said that she had misgivings about more than two. And a couple of quotes from that journal entry are, she said, most of the poly literature I read keeps telling me I could do it no matter how much pain I felt, 
It taught me to put bandages on it, to strategize around it, but never to listen to it. Mm. And then she goes on to say, pain is a signal. Sometimes, very often, in fact, it's a signal that you're being hurt and you need to stop what you're doing. Yeah. But a lot of more than two is just like, just doesn't slow down. Power through it. Logic yourself through it. Yeah. Yeah. And that has never worked for anyone, not in the long run. I mean, it works no. for nar- it works for narcissists. It works for right. <laughs> the narcissist that's asking their partner to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Ugh. Yeah, just it keeps it keeps popping up, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, it, it just goes. You know, a lot of times, overgivers end up with narcissists, and you know, you. I don't know if everybody knows the term narcissistic fuel. You've heard that term, yes? Explain. I've heard it, but you're the professional. So explain. What is it? So a narcissist, they need constant fuel since they don't really have true love in their life. Like mm-hmm. they, love is mutual where two people are trying to help each other be their best self. Mm-hmm. Love does not involve abuse and neglect. So inherently... A narcissist and, you know, in a love, a quote unquote love relationship, it's a, it's not really what I would call love. Mm -hmm. There might be some love in it, but there's a lot of damage in, in the relationship. So the narcissistic fuel, since they don't have that love, they have to get some kind of fuel, some kind of source. So you see Trump do it. He would do his rallies and it's like Mm. shooting up for him. You know, the whole crowd is just like idolizing him and 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 just and you'd see it like he when he got criticized a lot in the press that's that's when he do one of his rallies and it's like he's shooting up man you know he's mm-hmm. getting that narcissistic fuel and an overgiver is a narcissist fuel source mm. and they will drain that overgiver like you know if you ever heard in vampire lore a blood doll the right bl- the blood you know this you know the blood doll is the one that is not killed off entirely, but kept halfway alive so that the vampire can continue to feed. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the narcissist role in this dynamic. Mm. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm enlightened right now. Like, I'm so glad I'm seeing all this or kind of depressed. Like, it's everywhere. Right. It is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't take somebody being a narcissist to be this way. It can just be a man who heavily believes in gender norms Mm -hmm. where he, you know, and when I say gender norms, I mean that he's basically, you know, like to me, the perfect example is a Thanksgiving dinner where the guys are kind of scratching their butt, drinking beer and watching football games all day. And the women are like all day long working in the kitchen. There's no balance there. Right. But anyway, so so maybe we should start talking about healing. Yeah. Yeah. So. To heal from being an overgiver first, you have to be resourced enough to shift your patterns. Because if you're all of a sudden setting boundaries with the person in your life that you, that's used to you overgiving, they're not going to like that usually. Oh, yeah. That's, just, that's <laughs> hard. Right? I've been there. And right? it's like, oh. Yeah, you have to be prepared for that. And and like, you know, like you said, have the resources to be able because there's so many times that I tried in yeah. those relationships. And right. then I was like, who I'm not prepared for how hard this is. And I just give in and go back to the same patterns and be like, maybe I'll try again next year. <laughs> yeah, right. 
And especially if you're in a bubble where, you know, a bubble, a social circle where all the people are like this, where there's like heavy gender norms and there's a lot of narcissists and there's a lot of misogyny, then you, you know, it's like everyone's like that. So you're going to, even if you tried to break out of it, the chances that you're going to get pushed back into it are pretty high. You almost have to start to make a point of making friends that are more, you know, that operate in a different way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that leads me back to the classic, you know, if you're with someone who is a domestic abuser, you know, one of the classic first steps is separating you from your friends and your family, you know, so you are more in that bubble and you don't have that support network. Yeah, I've talked to some overgiver women, but, you know, where they're I'm talking to them about this stuff and they're like, but all men, all men are like that. I'm like, no, that's not true. It's the bubble you're in. All the men in your bubble are like this. Mm. But there's men who do want a true partner and they want to be a true partner and they want to care about your feelings and they they want to hear what you need. And but they want that, too. They want they want there to be emotional intelligence in the relationship and they do want to love you well, you know, but you have to find those people. And sometimes you have to go completely outside of your bubble. Mm hmm. Yeah. So we have to develop those resources. So the resources don't have to come from other men. They can come from building a yoga tribe or like, I mean, they can, your resource, you know, that those things or people that make you feel more rooted can come from a million different places. Right. You know, your spiritual pursuit, you know, your kink community, your, you know, your poly circle, you know, it can come from a million different places. Mm hmm. Right. And another thing is, is somatic work. And, you know, I could talk about that all day, but a lot of overgivers are in their head. They're not in their body. And -hmm. I'll give you an example. It's a non-monogamous example. Like say Bob says to Sarah, can I go sleep with Mary? And in the first example, Sarah just checks in with her head and her head says, well, Mary's always been kind to me and she's always been respectful to both of us. And I can't think of, re- of a reason why you shouldn't. And so he's, she's like, sure, go sleep with Mary. And he does. He comes back the next morning and she's pissed. And he's like, what the fuck? You told me I could. Okay, so now let's do a redo. Bob says to Sarah, can I sleep with Mary? This time she checks in with her body and she notices something that feels like a little knife drop through her gut. And she's able to say, to Bob, you know what? I don't know what's going on with me, but I had a reaction to that. Can I get back to you in two hours, a day, whatever? And he says, sure. She goes off. She sits with her body sensation, which leads to her feelings, you know, maybe of anxiety or what have you, which leads to her realizing some truth. Maybe it's, oh, our anniversary is in a week. That feels like too much. Or you've never spent the night with someone before without me. I'm not ready for it. Or I can't sleep when you're away. Can you come back by 2 a.m. so I can sleep through the night? And then he comes, she comes back to Bob with whatever truth it is. They have a discussion. And then he goes and sleeps with Mary, perhaps, right. if, if that's what they negotiate. And when he comes back, they cook breakfast together and it goes way better. <laughs> right. So this is the difference, like getting, starting to track your body and noticing what your body's telling you is a huge, huge part. Yeah. Of not being an overgiver. 
not only because I've been, this is kind of where I'm honing myself. Like I'm been very much in a place of listening to my body. And, you know, there's that other hurdle of not only being able to recognize like my body is telling me something, but to then overcome that assumption that especially if we're women who are having this reaction, that if we speak up and say something about it, we're not being selfish. You know, right. so that's like the other piece to, to not only recognize it, but then be able to open my mouth and communicate that to my partner. Right. Or, the, or that we're not being controlling. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, certainly if somebody has a full on anxiety disorder, they can come off as controlling. So you have to ask yourself, you know, like, at what point do I need to work on myself? At what point, you know, it's like you have to work this stuff out. Like, what is your responsibility? What is your partner's responsibility? Like having a dialogue, you know, but. It is at first, like not having that knee jerk response of I'll be controlling if I set a self-care boundary or I'll be selfish if I set a self-care boundary and kind of cooling your jets and going, that might not be true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so then then it leads to assertiveness training. And this is a huge part of it, like learning how to be assertive, because a lot of people that are overgivers, they're just very addicted to harmony, right? They're trying to keep harmony. And so they have a tendency to be, you know, like smiley, generous, generous until they blow their lid and then go back to harmony. Whereas somebody whose assertiveness is always, it's almost like steam you're letting off the pot. You're constantly letting the person know your feelings over time. And so there's no explosions. There's no losing your shit, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And that's, that's hard. You know, like you were saying that we were talking about before when we start putting down our boundaries and people react. I noticed that in my own life when I started becoming more assertive and not even assertive like I'm so assertive, ah, but more like I'm not putting on that fake smile and sugarcoating things. I'm just being neutral. <laughs> right. <laughs> that right. when that people who were used to me putting on a smile and sugarcoating things were like what the fuck? And really, it's like, I'm just saying something, you know, (laughs) without couching it in like, you know, bunnies and happiness. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, I've certainly had relationships where, where all of a sudden I started, you know, I've always been pretty assertive, but I've also dated some really strong personalities. Mm -hmm. So even though I was assertive, I sometimes I wasn't assertive enough. And when I started to really be as assertive as I needed to be. Sometimes they were like, why are you being such a bitch? And I'm like, sometimes it was because they were also getting stronger. And I'd mm. say to them, you know, you're strong enough to hear my truth now. Right, right. Um, yeah. So, and, and then also I think it's like building new models for who you're attracted to. Because it's like, if you're so wired to be attracted to the overtaker, mm-hmm. I've heard a lot of women just be, you know, a lot of people say, yeah, but the guy that's not a narcissist or whatever, they're boring. Yes. Oh, I've heard that a lot too. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you literally have to kind of rewire your circuit board to be attracted to a kind man, but yeah. you can do it. You can do it. You know? Yeah. I mean, we, and also we are in a society that has continually 
eroticized and sexualized the emotionally unavailable bad boy type. You know, in every movie, in every plot of anything, that's what we are conditioned to find sexy and exciting and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, intellectually challenging and fulfilling. And it's like, no. Yeah, when I realized that, that was like the biggest mind fuck explosion in my head where I was like, oh my God, from the time I was a little girl in elementary school, the guy that was painted as being the hot guy in the movie was a horrible narcissist was like he was treating her badly and then I'd look at the directors and or the writers and it was white male writers and like white male writers have been conditioning my little girl brain to be attracted to this from the time I was eight yes yes and you know I have to say this is one of the reasons why I love kink and role play because that's a healthy way to access like I am totally going to be overtaken by that like kind of a man in a safe container where it's not overtaking my entire life we're just doing this in the bedroom for two hours you know uh my compulsion is satisfied I am I've gotten my my o's I've gotten my intellectual stimulation with the bad boy I'm done now and I did it healthily Right. And and kink has allowed me to also get in touch with my, you know, like I said, in a previous episode, I identify as switchy. It also gave me a a space where I could attract partners that enjoyed me being in a dom role and being able to step into that female dominance that's not really considered okay within gender roles and patriarchy and all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I attribute a lot of my assertiveness in my, you know, default daytime life to experiment. You know, I call it like an emotional test kitchen kink. You know, I experiment with like, okay, let me be assertive. Ooh, that felt weird, but it was kind of exciting. And once I practiced it a few times and tested it out, I can bring out that part of my personality to, you know, the real world, I don't know, negotiating a raise with my boss or, you know, whatever it is. That was a very yeah. stereotypical example. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I'm just having kind of this epiphany right now. It's, you know, it's just like even even in the therapeutic community, you'll hear a therapist be like, oh, well, people into BDSM are just recapitulating childhood trauma, you know, and all this oversimplification or mm-hmm. or it's just women that have been, you know, treated poorly and they're just falling into... They're just doing a heightened version of patriarchy or something like that. And what we're talking about is actually healing from some of this stuff oh, yeah. through BDSM. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's it's it's just so deep. You know, there's so much that people don't realize with the role plays and kink that that you can benefit from. Right. There's so yeah. so much creativity and it just depends on you know, who your partners are and what you've set up, right? So it can mm-hmm. be a million different things, you know, but people yeah. just have this small little idea of what they, what it is because they just watch, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey or, you know, like some, some dinky thing like that. Yeah. But um, yeah. So, so with the healing, you know, the only last thing that I would say is just, I'm just going to list off some things, you know, things like EMDR, meditation, mindfulness, trauma-informed yoga, like all of these things can can help. You might be like, well, how does meditation and mindfulness help? Well, you know, it's like the more you drop down into sitting with yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, and being more in tune with your body, the more you aren't denying what's truly going on with you. Right. You know? Right. 
I mean, that's part of it. I could go on for, forever, but that's part of it. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, I, I feel like the Open Deeply podcast in itself is a medium to break down a lot of this stuff. Oh, absolutely. You know, you know, and I've, I've said this and we both said this numerous times over many conversations and podcasts. It's like that phenomenon. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And sometimes it just takes one little thing, one exposure, one conversation, one podcast episode to get you to start seeing it. And once you fall down that rabbit hole, the rabbit hole for good and self-improvement, you kind of can't go back. So I, I, I hope, I think, I know, that's what we are to some people. Yeah, and it's, it's like that word. I remember in episode one, you were saying that word systemic, you hadn't heard it as much, but now you can't not see it. And, yeah. and in this episode, you can see how the overgiving overtaker dynamic you know, it's systemic. It starts off with former President Trump and le- and it just bleeds down all the way down under our door, into our relationships, into our bodies, into our minds, how we're conditioned. It's an every it's completely systemic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, once once you see it, you're not going to unsee it. I love it. Yeah. Well, Kate, every time we record and every time we have conversations, I learn something, even though, you know, technically, I guess I'm supposed to be some sort of authority because I'm the host of this podcast, but I feel like I'm always learning. And that will bring us to next episode where we're going to have another guest sharing their story, where we're going to uncover truths, look more into those systems that affect us all. So join us next time when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes, and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Barrett.